Welcome to Weekend Friends. I'm Anna Kasparian. Joining us from prison, although he's having a great time, is Nando Vila. What's up, Nando? Prison's pretty fun, you know? You party, you get, you know, three hot meals a day. What more could you ask for? It looks like a great time. And they let you wear whatever you want, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's no dress code in this prison. Yeah, it's great. Um, I'm hoping that you're in a fun place. Um, I heard Danny Bessner, Daniel Bessner in the background um, talking it up, which makes me think you're having a good time. Um, yeah, he's talking nonsense nonstop, Bessner. He doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. I don't believe it. <laughs> I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Uh, we have a giant show ahead, ahead for you guys today. Uh, later in the interview portion, we're going to have uh, Lee Phillips on to talk to us about the vaccine distribution and mm. uh, which countries have actually fared better than others. And it's actually pretty surprising um, if you haven't been paying close attention to uh, how distribution works and how supply chains have basically been destroyed by neoliberalism. But we'll get to that later. Uh, There's a possible global tax uh, that's being pitched by Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary. Nando's going to talk about that. And uh, I'm going to discuss the housing market and what is currently happening which is basically an acceleration of what we saw after 2008. Private equity firms snatching up uh, single-family homes, and it's destroying our opportunities to find a place to live. Uh, But before we get to all of that, Nando, I wanted to figure out what to talk about for our banter today. And I want to banter about how there's nothing worth bantering about. Like, the, (laughs) the news has been, in my opinion, just unbearable, difficult to care about, Every day we get a slow and steady drip of Matt Gates drama. Every single day we hear, you know, arguments about whether or not progressives are doing enough in Congress. Like, it's just, I want to get out of this news cycle. Like, there's nothing inspiring going on. Actually, I was, I was just chatting about that with producer Kale before you came on in the pre-show. And I was just like, you know, outside of very kind of localized things like the Amazon Union Drive in Bessemer or, um, you know, some DSA activity in New York City and things like that. Like, it just feels like we just don't have a role to play on the left so much in the news anymore, like in in the affairs that are going on. Like, we just, you know, after Bernie's defeat, you know, when, when the Bernie campaign was still alive, and I'm including sort of the, the in between 2016 and 2020, you know, uh, it did feel like we were building towards something that we could have a, a potential shot at, at power. And, and now it just feels very, very far away. And mm-hmm. it, I think, has the effect of it's slightly paralyzing in that you just feel like you have no, you know, the debates are happening, but we don't really have that much of a role to play. Obviously, you know, we should, that doesn't mean you give up and go home, but like it just doesn't, uh, yeah, it doesn't feel like we we have anything to fight for. That the, the that the stuff is happening, whether we like it or not. Like regardless, regardless of what we <laughs> of what we do. Yeah, I, I think that's a good analysis of of what makes us feel the way we're feeling right now. It's also just kind of like an awareness of how the stories that do get published right now don't really have a material impact on on anyone (laughs) really like it's it's scandal related stuff it's you know it's nonsense there's nothing but nonsense in the news and it's been really difficult to put rundowns together um for you know 
a daily show that I host. So it's yeah. been it's been difficult. So um, we're just here to tell you folks that um, our banter segment in- includes the fact that there's nothing to banter about. Mm. But yeah. we do have great decode segments for you guys, which we'll get to in just a minute after our Verso read. Nando, take it away. Ah, yes. Well, you know that if you join the Verso Book Club, you get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off everything on the website books, and merch for as long as you are a subscriber. Each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month, and if you join in April, you'll get four books. Planet on Fire, a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown by Matthew Lawrence and Laurie Laburn Langton. Terminal Boredom by Izumi Suzuki, a short story collection translated from Japanese. Prophets of Deceit, a study of the techniques of the American agitator by Normer, Norbert Guterman and Leo Lowenthal, and the updated paperback edition of Being Numerous Essays on Non-Fascist Life by Natasha Leonard. Yeah. Terminal Boredom. I got to pick up that book. Maybe I can relate to it with everything we're going through in the news cycle right now. But uh, everyone check out Verso. Uh, it's a great partner of ours, and uh, we appreciate their support. Yes. Well, let's talk about uh, disaster capitalism, Nando, and uh, what we are currently experiencing during this pandemic in the form of more redistribution of wealth to the very top. And the housing market, if anyone's been looking at housing prices, I'm sure you've noticed that homes just become more and more out of reach. Uh, I know you and yeah. I talk about this all the time, Nando, and it's going to get worse. The question is, are we in a bubble? And how is that bubble going to impact us the second it pops? Let me make my point. Cops clashed with demonstrators in Los Angeles just a few weeks ago as the city violently forced a growing homeless encampment out of Echo Park. So the, the homeless encampment is actually one of many in Los Angeles where more than 60,000 people remain unhoused. And some set up tents right next to freeways and train tracks. Others find shelter under freeway bridges. But what was sold to Angelinos as a solution during the coronavirus pandemic has actually turned out to be a massive failure. So Los Angeles County, under the direction of Governor Gavin Newsom, began renting vacant hotel rooms to people for people, uh, but that project actually didn't even really make a dent. Remember, we have about 60,000 unhoused people in Los Angeles, and so when the Los Angeles Times looked into this to figure out just how much Operation Room Key housed people, they found that as of February, the county was renting 12 hotels with just 1,350 rooms uh, through a program known as Project Room Key. It plans to keep 11 of those 12 sites open through September at the latest, meaning that this is just a temporary solution to, I guess, deal with the pandemic. But even the temporary solution wasn't good enough. And to be clear, local officials didn't even really try to get reimbursed for the hotel rooms that they paid for. Uh, the... Biden administration promised to reimburse uh, the rooms for up to 100%. And we also learned from the LA Times that the county has requested $73 million from FEMA for Project Room Key. 
and has received $12.4 million. The city government has yet to request any money from FEMA for what it has spent on the hotel program. So they just kind of gave up, even though the Biden administration told um, politicians in Los Angeles, don't worry, we will reimburse you. They just kind of stopped applying to get that money. And now one housing advocate argues that there is federal money on the table. The literal FEMA response the mayor has been begging for, and yet the city has found excuse after excuse not to take advantage of it. But look, the real issue is that none of the solutions being proposed right now to deal with the lack of affordable housing and certainly to deal with homelessness look into the root of the problem. In fact, the core of the problem seems to remain unnoticed by government officials, both on a local level and on a federal level. It's treated as a commodity, owning a home, right? You're thought of as investing in something when you buy a home. But does it make sense to commodify something that is necessary for living a life of dignity, something that should be considered a basic human right, shelter, right? And uh, the fact that we've commodified it has uh, obviously led to the situation we're experiencing now. But government policy that essentially rigged the system against ordinary working Americans has accelerated the problem. That's certainly what happened after the 2008 economic collapse. uh, And that's how Obama decided to respond to the collapse. Take a look at this. Tent cities are growing in America, where unhoused people live together in places like sidewalks and public parks. Hundreds of encampments popped up across the U.S. since the economic crisis of 2008. And when the global pandemic hit in 2020, homeless numbers spiked and tent cities became exponentially larger. So homelessness did become worse after the 2008 economic collapse, even though the Obama administration sold their uh, economic recovery policy to us as if it was going to benefit middle class Americans, working Americans. It was supposed to prevent Americans from getting foreclosed on. But just the opposite happened. And it's worth exploring that to really understand the moment that we're currently experiencing. The important thing to keep in mind is that when shelter, this is the point, when shelter is considered considered a profitable investment rather than a basic human right, the vultures will swoop in and outbid ordinary Americans, and they will game the system to their advantage. So rather than forcing some burden sharing between banks and homeowners through bankruptcy reform or debt relief, Obama prioritized creditor rights, placing most of the burden on borrowers. Obama enabled and encouraged roughly 9 million foreclosures. And when that happened, the vultures came in. As the Wall Street Journal notes, uh, financiers stepped in starting in 2011 and gobbled up foreclosed homes at steep discounts. They dispatched buyers to courthouse auctions with duffel bags of cash. They dominated the market for a few years, accounting for about a third of sales in some markets. There wasn't much competition. Banks made it harder for regular home buyers to get a mortgage. Now, Keep in mind, the Federal Reserve was printing money, handing it over to the banks to provide liquidity. And the whole point was that the bank would then have the money necessary to lend to ordinary people so they can remain in their homes, so they can purchase homes, 
That is not what happened, though. They kept the money for themselves, they rigged the system against us, and decided to purchase homes at, obviously, an incredible bargain. Reporter Aaron Glantz, um, who wrote an incredible book about this called Homewreckers, um, shows just how these vultures exploited tr- the tragedy of 9 million uh, individuals who had lost their homes. Take a look. But I noticed that the home ownership rate in this country Instead of going up during the economic recovery, it kept going down. It went down in 2012. It went down in 2013, 14, 15, and 16. Until 2016, it bottomed out at its lowest rate in over 50 years. We have seen a massive transfer of wealth, as I mentioned, not from, you know, one group of families who got foreclosed to another group of families who were able to buy homes. But we now have three million homes in this country that are owned by LLC, LP, and LLP shell companies. And some of the largest buyers of these homes were these private equity funds run by Tom Barrick and Steve Schwartzman. Mm, Steve Schwartzman, uh, the head of Blackstone, the individual who bragged about snatching up these homes at a bargain following the 2008 economic collapse. And then he turned them into rentals, rentals that were basically neglected. He didn't spend much money on repairing these rentals. And uh, tenants, understandably, had many complaints during the pandemic, by the way, even though there's been a an eviction moratorium, uh, Blackstone has continued to evict individuals for failure to pay their monthly rent. Now, uh, it is important to take a look at just how far it went with these private equity firms. Take a look. There's now a company called Invitation Homes, which was founded by Blackstone, Steve Schwartzman's company, owns 80,000 homes across more than a dozen states. And it's a Private, it's a publicly traded company now that they had their IPO. So you can track. They track very clearly their rent increases, the relatively small amount of money they spend on maintenance, and also importantly, because these people are leveraged buyout kings, they have been taking these homes and bundling them into this new type of mortgage-backed security, taking on a ton of debt. So, for example, I mentioned earlier Sandy Jolly, this uh, longtime homeowner in Los Angeles area, whose family owned their home for more than 30 years before they were foreclosed on by Steve Mnuchin's bank. Now that home is part of a $960 million mortgage-backed security bundled with thousands of other homes. So if you go and look at the property record, you don't see like a $20,000 home equity line of credit to remodel the kitchen. You see a $960 million lien on the house taken out by a private equity firm. So... Essentially, these private equity firms are engaging in similar activity that we saw in the lead up to the 2008 economic collapse. We're talking about potentially toxic assets, uh, especially when you consider the fact that these are massive leveraged buyouts that rely on people renting their units. Think about how Americans can barely afford rent and how many Americans have to take out debt in order to make ends meet. If the Federal Reserve uh, increases how much it costs to borrow by increasing the interest rates, well, it would impact ordinary Americans who rely on credit in order to be able to pay their bills. And if they can't make their rent, what happens to all that outstanding debt that these private equity firms have? Anyway, that'll be a story for another time. But let's get back to what these private equity firms did after 2008 and how it's only been accelerated during this economic um, instability as a result of the pandemic. We, the U.S. taxpayers, 
not only had to bear the brunt of the economic collapse, but when it came to uh, essentially helping these banks and helping private equity firms um, purchase these homes, keep in mind that we subsidize part of it. I mean, it's a little complicated to understand, but Aaron Glantz does a good job explaining it in this next clip. When all of these bad loans came due and there was massive foreclosures, we, the taxpayers, the government, subsidized those foreclosures. And there were a lot of people who lost money during that time, but there were also people who bet on these failed banks and received government support to foreclose. And that included, as you mentioned, Steve Mnuchin, who's now our Treasury Secretary. He and his group of other investors, including George Soros, John Paulson, Michael Dell, the founder of Dell Computer, came in and bought IndyMac Bank, which was this form, uh, failed Pasadena, California bank, and then proceeded to foreclose on over 100,000 families, including 23,000 seniors. Now, under the deal that he made with the government to acquire this bank, which the government owned because it failed, he and his investors paid the government nothing. And then, although he invested some of his own money in the bank, we then paid him to subsidize his foreclosures. And uh, documents that I obtained under the Freedom of Information Act uh, show that we paid his group more than a billion dollars. We subsidize the foreclosures. I mean, if people don't think that this system is broken, I don't know what a broken system would look like. The 2008 economic collapse obviously was a, a, a crisis created by Wall Street, but it was a crisis that they not only got rich from, they only became richer after the crisis thanks to policies that were sold to the American people as policies that would help us as policies that would uh, hold Wall Street accountable. But quite the opposite happened. And that brings us to where we are today. Private equity firms with billions and yield chasing investors currently, currently are snapping up single family houses to rent or flip. Uh, they're competing for houses with ordinary Americans, people like us, and driving up the value of these homes. Now, some of these specific examples are important to take a look at because it's not about, oh, we don't have enough homes in construction. We we need to do away with these zoning laws. I mean, we've heard about all of these like band-aid fixes, but at the heart of the issue is literally we're seeing developers building entire communities of new homes and then not selling it to couples looking for a starter home, what they're doing is selling the entire neighborhood that they just built to private equity firms, which then turn around and rent them out. The private equity firms aren't interested in selling individual homes to people looking for a place to live. And look, keep in mind that since owning a home is considered an investment under this system, it's really the only way that average working people can build wealth, right? Buying a home and then seeing the value of that home increase over the years. That is one of the only ways left for ordinary Americans to build wealth. But when you have private equity firms uh, snatching up entire neighborhoods that were built intentionally for them to snatch up, then we've got a problem. And so 
the Wall Street Journal actually did a pretty good report on this, and they gave specific examples, including D.R. Horton, Inc., which built 124 homes in Conroe, Texas, rented them out, and then put the whole community, Amber Pines at Foster's Ridge, on the block. A who's who of investors and home rental firms flocked to the December sale. The winning $32 million bid came from an online property investing platform, Fundrise LLC, which manages more than $1 billion on behalf of about 150,000 individuals. And what about Los Angeles, where homelessness is um, obviously much more pronounced than any other part of the country? There's homelessness everywhere, but 60,000 unhoused people in Los Angeles County alone um, obviously shows that we've got a real problem here. And what we hear from our local lawmakers is that we just need to do away with zoning laws, right? It's just that we're not constructing enough homes. But it looks like we are constructing homes for private equity firms. Madison Realty Capital closed a $110 million loan on a project in Los Angeles where 220 of the nearly 700 home sites are being sold to investors. The original plans, derailed by the housing crash, didn't envision any rentals. So while Angelinos keep hearing about uh, the lack of building The opposite is really true. I mean, you can see it if you live in L.A. You can see the high-rise luxury condos. You can see the high-rise luxury apartments that sit vacant. But the problem is, obviously, the housing that's being built is being built with the sole purpose of making the rich richer. And also, let's keep in mind that in a globalized economy, we need to keep track of the foreign private equity firms that come in and snatch up U.S.-based real estate, something that should be outlawed. Now, there's a lot of criminality tied to that uh, in the form of money laundering. Uh, But then there's also just private equity firms looking for a place to park their money and, and get rich. Foreign investors barely registered in these markets a few years ago. Now they account for nearly a third of institutional investment in single family rental homes. Uh, Just to give you a few specific examples, you have German insurer, um, German insurer Allianz SE, which last month said it is investing in a venture to buy more than $4 billion of U.S. rental homes. Singapore's sovereign wealth fund GIC is backing plans by Quinn residences to buy single family rental homes across the southeastern United States. And the pandemic has been particularly brutal to the personal finances of millions of Americans. We've had the moratorium to prevent people from getting evicted or foreclosed on. Uh, Now, of course, people have still been evicted. But what happens once that moratorium is lifted and just how many Americans are currently in forbearance? Well, the Mortgage Bankers Association in their latest report found that 2.3 million homeowners are in forbearance plans. Will the lenders allow homeowners to refinance? Will they allow the homeowners to attach the missed payments toward the end of their loan rather than having to pay large lump sums at once, which, of course, they wouldn't be able to afford? Are we going to deal with mass foreclosures? Well, it looks like we might. And if we don't have solid government policy to prevent that from happening, uh, we're going to see more private equity firms come in and snatch up these single family homes uh, and essentially rent them out for themselves. And Blackstone doesn't even hide the fact that they're doing this. I mean, here's one recent headline. Well, it's from September of 2020 from Bloomberg showing that Blackstone to boost mobile home bet with $550 Mm. million deal. 
I mean, they're snatching up properties, low end, high end, it doesn't matter. And also the private equity giant Blackstone is leading a group of investors in a 300 million minority investment in Tricon Residential Inc., which owns and manages more than 30,000 single family rental homes and multifamily units in North America. And look, it should be terrifying considering that Blackstone doesn't care about the moratorium and has decided to evict its own tenants in the middle of this pandemic. That's the dystopian uh, world that we're living in now, and it's only going to become far more dystopian in the future because we don't even hear Congress talking about this issue. And why do we have foreign investors buying homes in the United States when we have a housing crisis? Office buildings will also be freed up as more people work from home. And so Glenn Robbins, who's... um, over at Jacobin writes, a better model will be to revisit what happened in parts of London in the late 1960s and early 1970s when hundreds of privately owned, badly managed or empty homes were taken into public ownership. Similar things happened during the same period in the fire-ravaged Bronx through cooperatives. And look, that actually is a great idea, making these homes um, owned by the government to ensure that public housing is available for people makes more sense than what we're experiencing now. But remember, disaster capitalists under the system that we're living in right now never miss a good crisis. And so here's one private equity guy who private equity guy who noticed that commercial real estate's in trouble. So he's decided to buy it at a bargain. Take a look. Hotels are in deep trouble. The share of hotels currently behind on their mortgages rose to just over 18% in December, according to Fitch Ratings. That's even worse than retail real estate. But it creates an opportunity for investors like Peters to buy properties to convert at bargain basement prices. It's kind of a win-win-win. The community wins, the residents win, the investors win. Now, Peters has two other hotel conversions under contract, one in Minnesota and one in South Dakota, which he's getting for about half the value it was appraised at three years ago. He compares this with what happened during the subprime mortgage crisis a decade ago. Millions of homeowners defaulted on their mortgages and investors came in to buy the properties and convert them into rental housing. So you're going to see a lot more of this soon. Wow, Diana, you seem real happy about that. It is kind of incredible how CNBC sells this as if it's a good thing. It's not. To have private equity essentially purchase up every bit of real estate available so we all live under these slumlords is not a good idea. But again, we got to get back to the core of the issue. Real estate is seen as a hot investment opportunity. It's seen as a commodity when in reality it should be seen as a basic human right. When you have a profit model behind something, that's when the vultures come in and that's when they clearly will game the system against us. And that's obviously what's happened here. What we need to have is true a true focus on public housing. We need to ban foreign investment in residential real estate at least. And one other thing to keep in mind is maybe there should be a limit on the number of properties an individual can buy or a company can buy. The fact that wealthy people can just snatch up dozens of homes across the country also doesn't make sense when we keep hearing this argument that we have a lack of homes available. Obviously, the system is broken and Americans are suffering as a result of that. FDR had good solutions to this, but it didn't really deal with the core issue, something that obviously uh, the 
uh, something that Wall Street and uh, and private equity firms have been able to roll back throughout the years to further game the system to their advantage. So we're experiencing this right now, Nando. Um, you know, I, I was really lucky to get into uh, the market before it became completely unattainable, and I bought a, a little condo, and I'm happy here. Uh, but buying a house is just it's never going to happen with the way things are going. Yeah. I mean, it's in the point you make about, um, foreigners. I mean, it's not to like become some sort of like ardent nationalist. It's more about like the fact that housing needs to be for the people that live there. That live I mean, it's, here. It's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it, it needs to, uh, you know, for obvious reasons. Uh, I'm from Miami and, um, it's 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 been crazy to see in the last couple decades how the city has transformed into a sort of playground for largely Latin American oligarchs, but also Russian oligarchs and, and just wealthy people from around the world, while the residents of Miami um, are living under some of the, the highest housing burdens in the country, meaning like the, the ratio that they pay um, on average in housing vis-a-vis wages. And um, so you have to do something to to put a stop to that because there's plenty of buildings being built in Miami. I mean, just look at there's cranes everywhere. And every time I go back, there's like three new buildings in in downtown or in or in Brickell. Um, But the vast majority of that is just being bought up by, you know, wealthy Venezuelans or Brazilians or Colombians or whatever. um, And it's not really being used for the benefit of the people who actually have to live and work in Miami. Um, I mean, this is true also in New York. Um, if you look at midtown Manhattan on any given night, I mean, it's crazy just how, how empty these buildings and one of the most desirable real estate markets in the world. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Like it's, it's Manhattan, you know, like really like just one of the, I think the densest area in the United States. Um, it's still, it's just large swaths of it are fully, fully empty. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it's, it's just, it's crazy to me how, uh, how not of a political issue this is, you know, like you'd think there's nothing more fundamental to someone's life, you know, outside of like food, shelter, you know, um, and, and, and the, the breadth and depth of the crisis is just so deep that it's just, it's, it's, it's bizarre to me that there's no, um, I don't know that there's just there's not more being discussed about this. And you're right that the solution is public housing in some way, you know, just vast expansion of public housing with things like rent control as well. And 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 a ban on foreign investment. I mean, it's 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 just it's 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 crazy, but it's it's really it's really infuriating um, just how bad the problem has become. Yeah, it's 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 so bad. I mean, you see it. There isn't a single part of LA County that doesn't have a massive encampment in it. You know, I mean, you see it right in front of you. There are fires like outdoor fires because they, you know, they'll have propane or whatever just to keep warm at night. Um, And it's, it's amazing how many people complain about it. It's amazing how people complain about how much they're personally spending on housing every month but it seems like people have difficulty kind of connecting the dots, right? There's still like this mentality of, oh, well, if they're homeless, they did something wrong to get there. But yeah. honestly, everyone is 
any worker in this country is one medical emergency away from finding yeah. themselves in a similar spot. And L.A. County, for instance, just to mention one other point that I think is important. L.A. County was considering taxing landlords who have vacant units because there are more than 100,000 vacant units in Los Angeles alone. And obviously we have 60,000 homeless people. Like, let's let's figure out like how we can get these uh, units uh, rented. And so the idea was, if you're not renting it, we're going to tax you to give you uh, a disincentive to keep it vacant. And this L.A. City Council just brushed it under the rug. They're like, no, we're not mm. interested. And I suspect it's because a lot of these empty units um, are owned by these big developers who like like the tax benefits that they get for having these empty units and don't yeah. want to rent them out. You know, yeah. th- there's just so much shady crap going on. And it drives me crazy. It's an important story. Yeah, no, it's 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 part of the the illogical nature of of the capitalist system we live in, where we have people out living on the streets and we have empty homes. I mean, just, that just fundamentally is a political failure that, that needs to be resolved, you know, at, at urgently. So, yeah. Well, Nando, uh, one other thing that needs to be resolved is uh, these people who dodge their taxes, these yes. tax havens. What are we going to do? What are we going to do about it? Well, hopefully we can tax them. Um, you know, back in 2017... Donald Trump slashed the American corporate tax rate from 35% to 21%. This obviously made business people very, very happy. They'd been complaining for years that the 35% rate was way too high and that it made U.S. firms uncompetitive in the global market. This was, of course, always a bunch of gobbledygook. Because of the presence of many tax loopholes, Few businesses actually paid that 35% rate. And in terms of competitiveness, I mean, just look at the top companies in the S&P 500. U.S. firms are doing fine. Now, President Biden is proposing to raise that rate back up to 28% in order to pay for his big infrastructure bill. Now, it's still below the 35% it was before 2017. But if they do it in a way that closes a lot of those loopholes, the effective rate may be higher. But in the wake of that proposal... Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen called for something very, very interesting, something that certainly piqued my interest, a global minimum corporate tax. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has called for a global minimum tax rate. Uh, The goal, getting other countries on board in order to prevent offshoring. This is a tax rate for corporations. Let's listen. Competitiveness is about more than how U.S. headquarters come headquartered companies fare against other companies in global merger and acquisition bids. It's about making sure that governments have stable tax systems that raise sufficient revenue to invest in essential public goods and respond to crises. Now, if implemented, a global minimum corporate tax would probably be the most significant reordering of the world economic system since the Bretton Woods Agreement of 1944. It is an idea that Thomas Piketty has been calling for since his book, Capital in the 21st Century, burst onto the scene in 2013 and changed the way a lot of people thought about inequality. When you are in a situation where where the largest multinational corporation in the world sometimes pay a lower effective tax rate than the small and medium-sized businesses, 
you know, this is not good for anyone. Well, this is good maybe for them, but, but for the economy, you know, it's, it's not good. And, you know, if the middle class feels that they are paying more than the very rich, you know, this is not good because at some point later on down the road, you know, if you want support for globalization, it's important that broad groups in the population feel that they are benefiting from it. You cannot have just such a big fraction of the gains going to such a small group. So you, you want more transparency about who pays what. Right. And for this, uh, you don't need a global government, but you certainly need more global cooperation, more automatic exchange of information between countries about uh, cross-border financial assets, so that we have an equitable tax system which allows government to invest in public infrastructure. This is not good. This is really not good. Now, when I was at Fusion, uh, we were one of the news organizations that partnered to publish the Panama Papers leaks back in 2016. It was an incredible trove of information that showed just how staggering the offshoring of wealth really was. A new report says that at least $21 trillion is being held around the world in what are known as offshore accounts or tax havens. Now, that is $21,000 billion, 21 followed by 12 noughts, as you can see there. It is as much money as the entire annual economic outputs of the U.S. and Japan combined. Yeah, a trillion dollars really is a lot of money. It's like a thousand billions. Think this, this is a lot of money. Now, estimates today say that the actual amount of money hidden in offshore bank accounts could be as high as $32 trillion. I mean, just think of what we could do with all that money. Now, this problem has really gotten way out of hand during the neoliberal era as financialization and globalization have made it easy for corporations and the wealthy to move vast sums of money around the world with just a couple of clicks of the mouse. What has happened is that because corporations are able to move around very easily while countries are fixed in place, it creates an incentive for countries to lower their rates in order to attract investment, thus creating a race to the bottom. According to a study by economists Emmanuel Saez, Gabriel Zuckman, and Kimberly Clausing, quote, international tax competition and profit shifting have led to a large decline in effective corporate tax rates between 1985 and 2020. The global average statutory corporate tax rate has fallen from 49% to 23%. In the United States, the average effective tax rate on corporate profits has fallen from close to 50% in the 1950s to 17% in 2018. Multinational companies also shift paper profits between their various subsidiaries, including subsidiaries incorporated in offshore tax havens with zero or close to zero rates. As a consequence, there is increasing concern about corporate tax base erosion due to such profit shifting. The scale of this problem is quite large. As one example, in 2017 data for U.S. multinational companies, they report offshore accumulated earnings of $4.2 trillion, $3 trillion of which was in tax havens. And perhaps the most famous example of this kind of corporate tax avoidance has been Google, the host platform of this very program, who for years has been doing something called the double Irish to avoid paying taxes. Now, what is the double Irish, you say? Well, it's a lot less fun than it sounds. This is from the Irish Times. 
Quote, it's best described as a loophole or a quirk in the Irish tax code that allows companies to incorporate or set up here while remaining tax resident elsewhere. It meant Google and other companies could place their intellectual property patents in subsidiaries that were legally based in the Republic but not treated as being domiciled here for tax purposes. Instead, these companies put their IP in vehicles located in tax havens such as the Cayman Islands or Bermuda, where companies pay no income tax. This allowed them to channel billions of euros of profits through Ireland and onto Irish incorporated entities elsewhere, avoiding tax on a grand scale. You know, the Internet search giant Google has been using this double Irish to funnel billions in corporate profits through Ireland and onto Google Ireland Holdings, the parent company for Google Ireland, which is located in Bermuda, effectively putting them beyond the reach of U.S. tax authorities. Google Ireland Holdings recorded $14.5 billion in untaxed profits in 2017 on turnover of $22.3 billion while having zero staff on its books. But Google is not the only offender. According to Ryan Cooper in The Week, between 1980 and today, the percentage of foreign profits booked by U.S.-based multinational corporations in tax havens has tripled from less than 20% to almost 60%. There is no sign of the trend stopping either. In 2020 alone, nine countries cut their corporate rate. Now, as you would expect, the business community is none too pleased with the new proposed tax plan. The opposition to higher taxes from the business community is almost unanimous. 98% of the CEOs surveyed by the Business Roundtable said raising the rate from 21 to 28% would have a moderate to very significant impact on competitiveness. 75% said it would dampen investment and innovation, and 71% said it would hurt their ability to hire. Now, those survey results just came out today, and in a statement, Raytheon CEO Greg Hayes said, Keeping competitive tax policies in place is needed to help reinvigorate the U.S. economy and lead to more opportunities for Americans, especially after the pandemic. Now, Raytheon has projected it would have to pay an additional $1 billion under Biden's tax plan, and it warned it may slash R&D spending by 20%. Now, a good rule of thumb is if the Raytheon CEO doesn't like something, it's probably a really good thing. Now... Specifically with regards to the global minimum corporate tax, Foreign Policy magazine ran a funny op-ed by a guy named John Sullivan, who was a special advisor to the chairman and staff economist at the White House Council of Economic Advisors during the Trump administration. John Sullivan wrote, quote, in the unlikely event that Yellen's plan succeeds, one winner would be China. Ever since he was a provincial official, Chinese President Xi Jinping has viewed corporate taxation as part of how China competes with other countries. If rich democracies in the OECD tie their hands on corporate taxes, they'll be handing China, handing China, which is not an OECD member and unlikely to adopt the proposal, an opportunity to use tax rates and breaks to lure even more investment into China. This would directly undermine the Biden administration's stated goals on diversifying supply chains and containing Chinese power. In the more likely event that the administration's global corporate tax plan fails, the embarrassment thus created would hand propaganda points to Russia. Propaganda points. That's a new one I've heard. If the Biden administration's global minimum tax fails, it'll fail after Western democracies have spent at least several months arguing it's a solution for reducing global inequality. Russia, perhaps by weaponizing information on tax evasion by wealthy Westerners that's collected by its security services, will be all too happy to remind the world how U.S.-led multilateralism floundered at the attempt to stem all that inequality. Oh, no, not more propaganda points for Russia. you got to love 
that kind of op-ed. I mean, just makes puts a smile on my face. Now, President Biden has dismissed critics of the plan in the most Biden possible way by saying, quote, you have 51 or 52 corporations of the Fortune 500 that haven't paid a single penny in taxes for three years, he said. Come on, man. Let's get real. Now, the global minimum corporate tax, if handled correctly, would make this kind of scheme impossible. And beyond the actual tax revenue that it would raise, which is significant, on a more fundamental level, it would shift the balance of power between corporations and governments, which, you know, in theory, are accountable to us, the people. If governments don't work together, then corporations can exploit that competition between states for their own benefits. If states have some level of cooperation, They can avoid the race to the bottom, which has been occurring for decades. You know, the one thing that I wonder about this plan is what happens if you have one one state that decides, no, we're going to offer a lower rate. I mean, that's always yeah. I mean, that's always mm -hmm. possible, obviously. But the you know, if it's one of those things where like the U.S. and the rich world, the powerful world, the you know, the powerful countries you know, exert their power on all kinds of other things, you know, like they, they can, they can put pressure on the Cayman Islands, you know, to, to, to play ball by, you know, threatening sanctions or things like that. Like, you know, I'm not going to advocate like threatening, you know, bombing them or something, but like there are, there are ways that the, that the rich countries can coerce um, countries to do this. And, and there's also ways that they could just on the other end, you know, that they could just, they can penalize, um, uh, corporations that who engage in this kind of thing, like if say like you know say one country doesn't doesn't play ball, then um, mm-hmm. you can just say like well anyone who does business with that like any any corporation that sort of settles you know their their headquarters there or whatever um, in that country like will just you know you can't do business in the United States or you can't or you'll get a massive tax penalty or something like that like there's just a million ways to exert pressure if they really wanted to you know the United States influences local laws all over the place uh, for various nefarious things. Um, they could pressure these kind of tiny com- countries if they really, really wanted to. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's probably one of these things that's going to take a long time. You know, it's not going to happen overnight. I mean, it, it, I do find it interesting that within the, the Democratic Party, the co-sponsors for this kind of bill in the Senate have been Ron Wyden, who's, you know, good on a number of issues, um, Sherrod Brown, which is not very surprising, but also Mark Warner uh, from Virginia, who is, mm. I believe, still, if not the richest senator, one of the richest senators um, and generally like w- one of the most conservative Democrats. I mean, you know, people know about Joe Manchin, but Mark Warner is is, is not too far behind. Um, mm-hmm. So. So, yeah, um, it, it's, it's been an interesting kind of development. I did not expect it. It was not in the conversation in any way. I mean, it's been kind of. Uh, kicked around in in certain policy circles for a while, but it wasn't like a campaign issue or anything like that. Um, but it's something that needs to happen desperately. And I think that maybe in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, when governments have become very, very desperate for any kind of tax revenue at this point, you know, like their tax base has collapsed with the, with the, you know, the sort of economic stoppage caused by the pandemic. Like it may spur, it may be the reason why, you know, the, the United States and the EU are are thinking about implementing something like this. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I, I get a little pessimistic, especially when it comes to people like Janet Yellen, who, you know, 
was not the greatest when she was the head of the um, Federal Reserve. Uh, but the Federal Reserve has all sorts of problems with or without Janet Yellen. Um, and keep in mind, like, she was paid $11 million in just a short time span, two years, um, to just give speeches uh, on Wall Street. I mention that because the very people who would be impacted by this global tax, this global minimum tax, are the very people who have, you know, paid her bills in the past. Um, so there needs to be like a will to fight for this. And I'm pessimistic on that. But I do agree that it's a good, um, a good proposal. Um, but you know, since you mentioned coronavirus, and um, how governments have found themselves, you know, pretty ill prepared to respond to the pandemic, I think it's a good time to bring on our guest. Um, and here to speak with us today is Lee Phillips, a journalist and Jacobin's science writer, also the author of Austerity Ecology and the People's Republic of Walmart. Uh, he has a forthcoming article in Jacobin on state failure and the global vaccine rollout. Lee, thank you for being here. All right, glad to be here. Um, I feel very special because we got to read the draft of that upcoming piece, and it was fantastic. It was really good. In fact, I, I learned quite a bit um, about the distribution of the coronavirus <clears throat> vaccine all around the world. And, uh, you know, you're you basically end with um, this realization that, believe it or not, the United States, with its broken healthcare system at all, yeah. has done a great job with distribution, whereas Canada has had a difficult time yeah. with distribution. Yeah. So can you talk about why? Yeah, sure. So one of the reasons that I really wanted to write this article was, um, uh, given the incredible success that the United States has had with the vaccine rollout, um, and the UK as well, um, and how terrible Canada has been, and how terrible Europe has been, uh, there might be uh, people in the United States uh, more of a more conservative bent, let's say, or libertarian bent, that would use this as an example to say, see, we don't need Medicare for all. Uh, Canada has uh, this great single-payer health care system, and so much of Europe has uh, have their own public health care systems, and this hasn't worked. Yay, capitalism isn't capitalism great. Um, and the reality is that that's not really the, 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 the real story here. Um, so I wanted to break down in a very sort of um, a concrete fashion, very detailed explanation as to why Canada um, Canada's vaccine rollout has been just such a gong show, as we call it, uh, up here in Canada. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What is it? Why has it been so difficult for Canadians? So, I mean, basically uh, what I talk about is the fact that, you know, in, in we are very, very used to talking about state failure in the developing world. Um, but the reality is that since the 1970s, uh, across the West, uh, as a result of neoliberalism, uh, there's been a steady undermining of state capacity. And state capacity is just a bit of jargon that really just means the ability of states to mobilize resources, either material resources or human resources. Basically, it's the ability of states to do things. If they announce a policy, it'll happen. That's that's basically it. And um, Canada, um, at the early part of the 20th century, had um, a laboratory called Connaught Labs, which was publicly owned. Um, it produced uh, therapeutics and later later on became uh, sort of a world-class uh, developer uh, and manufacturer of vaccines. Um, it was it was so world class that actually you know it was primarily what um, uh, delivered uh, the polio vaccine to the United States 
um, that's how how impressive it was. But um, in the 1980s, uh, it was privatized by our conservative prime minister, Brian Mulroney. Um, and um, and then it was later bought up, and there was also a there was a uh, there was a manufacturer in uh, in Montreal, a vaccine manufacturer in Montreal as well. But that also got bought up, and uh, year after year, um, uh, there were reports that came out uh, from various different public health experts, clinicians, vaccinologists. Um, after each major sort of health crisis, after HIV/AIDS, uh, in the wake of the SARS uh, pandemic in two thousand three. Um, the uh, H1N1 uh, swine flu 2009. Um, at each of these points, uh, experts said, look, we, Canada has lost its, thanks to sort of privatization, Canada has lost its vaccine sovereignty, its ability to produce its own vaccines. Um, and uh, that's basically the, 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 the rationale. So uh, Justin Trudeau, you know, lauded around the world as this great sort of liberal uh, prime minister, is actually deeply neoliberal. And um, he basically bet the house on uh, buying uh, vaccines from other areas instead of uh, having paid attention to all these expert reports saying that you, well, ahead of the pandemic, you need to you know, establish a, um, uh, a vaccine research developing and, man- and crucially manufacturing capacity in mm. Canada. Um, and 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 he didn't. Uh, he, but he wasn't the only one. I mean, there have been six prime ministers in Canada that have been repeatedly warned by experts saying, "Look, this needs to happen." And the additional thing to this is the fact that you know Canada has a population of 36 million. That seems kind of a lot, but um, it's you know a tenth is roughly about a tenth of the United States. In a globalized world, that's just too small of a uh, an economy, too small of a market for any private. Um, mm. vaccine manufacturers or pharmaceutical companies to to set up shop, uh, which is why the state basically needs to uh, maintain this as a uh, sort of like the fire services, just like it's just they're ready to go uh, in the case of a pandemic. Um, even the even the private sector uh, pharmaceutical uh, biotech industry put out a report in 2010 basically saying Canada needs to develop its own uh, man- vaccine manufacturing capacity that you just you have it sit idle doing nothing uh, ready to go to ramp up um, in the case of the pandemic now of course the private um, uh, bi- uh, biotech firms who are just thinking like well we'll be the ones who do it and the, the, the state will just pay us to do this but uh, so even even the private sector recognized that this was an issue um, Europe has a whole other set of issues and I can get to that uh, in a second if you like yeah, I mean, I, so it's interesting. It's it's really just that the um, because the United States is is not just so rich, but also so large that um, that it just has an advantage over over a country like Canada, and and you, even in this kind of privatized neoliberal market, is that correct? Because of it, yeah. Well, there's two things. One, because of its sheer sheer size, so it's always a market that. Um, uh, private investors are going to be interested in in, in, in locating. Um, but the additional thing is that um, for all of the utter disaster um, of, of, of Donald Trump's uh, pandemic management, um, in this one thing, he really did exactly what needed to be done. That is to say that um, he, mm. he, he took reverse course with respect to 40 years of, of collapse of state capacity, of states' governments being able to do things. Uh, through uh, primarily through Operation Warp Speed, 
uh, which was the big the, uh, vaccine um, uh, a policy. But there's a couple of other things as well. So as early as February, uh, the um, Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, or BARDA, <clears throat> um, was throwing money at, um, at, at, at the vaccine, vaccine developers. Uh, so just like straight out of the gate, there is um, a state-led intervention. One of the things that allows uh, the United States to be able to do this in a way that other places <clears throat> uh, uh, can't necessarily historically is because um, the U.S. ironically actually has one of the more interventionist economies in the world uh, in terms of sort of economic planning. It just all tends to happen within the Pentagon. So long as you can call it, you know, um, stick a flag on it and, and a gun on it, you know, it's, it's fine for the state to intervene and to plan. And um, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency was the model for this. And I was the sort of location of development of all sorts of advanced uh, technologies that were later spun off into the uh, the private sector. You know, basically all of the uh, the main sort of technologies in your smartphone a rollout of out of public sector uh, funding, and a lot of it comes from from DARPA. Well, DARPA then, because of its such success, was then repeated over and over again in a number of other agencies. The same sort of model, where um, uh, with ARPA-E, so the Advanced uh, Project Research Projects uh, Agency, but with respect to energy, and BARDA was, is just a sort of biomedical one, um, and. Um, <clears throat> So there's that, then Operation Warp Speed. And then in addition to that, there was the uh, sort of advanced purchase agreements. So advanced purchase agreements basically tell uh, the manufacturer, don't worry, whatever you come up with, we will buy. Um, even in some cases where it may turn the clinical trials uh, turn out that it's not working. It was just too important. Um, and so you bet on everything. Um, and that was, it was stunning. It was absolutely amazing. And um, uh, as a result, and one of uh, you know, uh, one of the sort of te- technology platforms used uh, both for the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine mRNA uh, technology platform for a long time. This was sort of um, uh, wallowing in university labs, government labs, and the, and it had never really been there. There hadn't been a sort of um, uh, trip from from the lab bench through to commercialization, and that's what this did. And it isn't just applicable to COVID. Uh, this is a revolutionary technology that. Um, you know, early results coming in now suggest that uh, we may be able to possibly have a, finally a vaccine uh, for, for HIV AIDS, um, potentially even a universal flu vaccine, which is like being the holy grail of infectious disease response for, for decades, because it does it would that would a universal uh, flu vaccine means it's um, uh, all flus would be susceptible to it. And of course, we were we were reading or thinking that we would have to be facing down a deadly flu virus uh, as the next pandemic, not uh, not a coronavirus, uh, potentially less less deadly. Um, and so this is this is wonderful. I mean, uh, Matt Brunig, uh, the sort of the you know socialist policy one uh, with a, policy, a people's policy project, uh, you know, he jokingly tweeted um, a few days ago saying that you know from a from the focus of effective altruism. Um, Operation Warp Speed could be, you know, make Trump the greatest president in history simply because of the uh, the millions of lives uh, saved. I mean, he's clearly trolling there a little bit to, to focus on the importance of, of government uh, to do things. Uh, mm-hmm. And of course, later on, uh, by the end of the year, by, uh, sorry, Trump 
clearly um, just dropped the ball and focused entirely on trying to overturn a democratic uh, election. Um, and then and so the vaccine rollout began to sort of falter at that point. Can talk about and have been blabbing, but I can talk about how wonderful uh, Biden's rollout has been for many of the same reasons. We'll get to that in just a second, but I just want to um, just lay it out like clearly, like the big difference in state capacity between the United States and Canada really is the United States' ability to essentially flex state power and um, force the manufacturing of the vaccine in the United States. I mean, like the Defense Production Act, uh, invoking that was so important. Yeah. So that's so fascinating because really the the manufacturing of the vaccine has nothing to do with the system of healthcare in that country. No. So whether you have a single payer healthcare system or an incredibly broken privatized system in the United States, that's actually beside the point. And it's important to like really parse that out because to your point earlier in the interview, you know, and you quote him in your piece, Boris Johnson had said, because they're doing a great job in the in the UK as well, he said, the reason we have the vaccine success is because of capitalism, because of greed, my friends. But clearly that's not true. And so can you talk about what makes the UK different from the European Union, which has also had a lot of difficulty with the vaccine? I mean, it's just such a strange thing for, for Boris to say. Um, the, the great irony here is that his, his health minister, uh, Matt Hancock, had completely screwed the pooch with respect to uh, PPE uh, the, uh, early on in the pandemic uh, around sort of March, April last year. Uh, such a scandal that uh, nurses were uh, having to fashion ga- ga- gowns out of garbage bags, trash bags, um, uh, in one case, uh, people were fashioning masks out of, like going to diving stores and buying snorkel, like full face snorkeling uh, masks, uh, and cludging together um, their protective equipment that way. Um, and uh, Matt Hancock almost lost his job as a result of this just complete disaster. And he he turned on a dime. Um, he's he's a Tory, he's conservative, he's no friend of mine, but his real lesson out of this was. Um, we've just, the, the government's got to do this. And so very, very early on, around February, um, they're already working hand in glove with um, with uh, the de- vaccine developers. All along the way, they are going in and saying, and, and keeping a close eye, they're going into uh, at all the different stages in the supply chain, saying, what are you going to miss? What are you going to miss? How can we fix that? And this is almost identical to what Biden has been doing with the use of the defense, um, uh, uh, the DPA. Um, uh, basically anticipating um, shortfalls in the supply chain before they even happen. Um, using this uh, in the United States, using this old Korean War era uh, act that allows uh, ba- basically the government to make private investment decisions instead of the private the investors themselves, uh, prioritizing where uh, material is going to go, prioritizing certain contracts. Um, And basically the same thing happened in in the UK. It's just, you know, there wasn't sort of a name for it. The um, Matt Hancock just just went and did that. And whereas the EU never did that. Um, In fact, the EU doesn't have the state capacity to do that. It isn't properly a state. It, um, 
it simultaneously sort of removes, uh, hollows out democratic accountability, um, it removes uh, sovereignty at the, 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 the nation state level, while never really absorbing it itself at the, at the, at the, to- at the EU level. The, you know, there's a lot of discussion from uh, some sort of more conservative critics of the European Union in the, U- in the, in the UK, so describing it as a super state. It's kind of, if anything, the main problem with the EU that it isn't a super state, that, you know, it only has 30,000 um, uh, civil servants, uh, which is about the size of um, the, 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 the staff complement of a mid-sized city, whereas they're basically governing or not governing um, a population base of 445 million people. So they just don't have those levers of state that they can pull on to 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 engage in this. And they're also just ideologically uh, sort of more neoliberal. They wouldn't. They don't even want to do this. It's uh, the very purpose of the European Union is to sort of uh, as a, a a project of liberalization of um, <clears throat> um, yeah, it's, it's effectively a neoliberal project. And so. <clears throat> the very structures that it has itself are, are reflective of that ideology. So, for example, where in the U- U.S., the U.S. has the Food and, uh, Food and Drug uh, Administration, which is a unitary, uh, centralized um, uh, assessment entity. And it's effectively a consumer protection uh, agency, making sure that, um, that drugs, are, drugs are safe. Now, there's all sorts of problems with that and regulatory capture, but the, 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 the fundamental argument I want to be making here is that it's still at least a unitary, centralized, very powerful agency. The European uh, Medicines Agency, by contrast, isn't a consumer protection agency at all. What its purpose is to harmonize between the 27 different um, drug uh, agencies across the yeah the 27 member states, plus um, in, in the case of, uh, of COVID, um, uh, Norway, Liechtenstein, and... Is Switzerland. Anyway, there's three uh, European states that are not member states but are participating. Um, so, and each of those agencies have to, in the case of the uh, the COVID uh, vaccines, had to uh, sign off on on their approval. And of course, that's incredibly bureaucratic um, um, of, of way of processing these things. It slows things down enormously. And this isn't even just my opinion. I mean, this is this is basically the analysis of. Uh, you'll see this in, in the Financial Times and a uh, range of sort of publications and, and actors who are not necessarily immediate fans of, of economic planning and, and strong state capacity. Um, the EU is it's it's just this incredibly weak entity. Um, it's and it's very much a parallel to what happened in Canada. Uh, where as a result of 40 years of neoliberal undermining of, of state capacity, um, it, it, it isn't able to do things uh, anymore. I, oh, did we lose Lee? Lee got bumped off for a sec. I assume he'll be coming oh, back. No. Here he is. We oh, got no. him. <laughs> we got him. Sorry. <laughs> we got you, We're Lee. <laughs> All right. Welcome well, back. Um, you'll see. Welcome back. <laughs> I can't, sorry. No worries. Um, Lee, I wanted to ask about the news that broke this week about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Right. Um, the Biden administration halted uh, the administration of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine uh, after there was, a, I think, six blood clot uh, cases reported. I know my friends back in Spain, I'm originally <coughs> from Spain, um, are very, you know, they're, they're all, you know, in Spain, to the extent that they're getting vaccinated, they're getting the AstraZeneca vaccine. They're very worried about that. Uh, w- what do you make of, of all that? What can you help us unpack? What what's going on there? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, um, you know, it's coming towards um, exam season at universities and colleges at the moment, but um, definitely next semester, uh, introduction to statistics course uh, professors are going to have a field day <laughs> with this. Um, it's such an object lesson in uh, sort of probability and, and these sorts of things. Uh, so uh, out of 7.2 million um, doses delivered worldwide, six people just six have uh, contracted the, uh, this sort of um, uh, blood clot condition. That's less than one in a million. Um, so uh, the, uh, the benefit vast of, of, uh, of, of being vaccinated vastly, vastly outweighs the, uh, the, the danger, the risk involved with, uh, from, from this um, blood clotting uh, syndrome. Uh, for comparison there, um, uh, so one in a million, basically six out of uh, under one in a million, really. For, so for comparison, your chances of dying in a, a fatal car accident are one in 10,000. Uh, your your chances of being struck by lightning are one in 500,000. So uh, that puts it into context. Um, again, with the AstraZeneca have a similar um, uh, syndrome occurring. Um, it's just 222 out of 34 million, uh, or four to six uh, people out of one million. Um, so, I mean, I, the, the pause may make sense, uh, but but not to stop delivery. The whole the rationale behind the pause is so, uh, to give scientists and public health officials a chance, a bit, a bit of a breather, to be able to understand how to treat it. Um, one, uh, to identify who it's most likely to happen to, and therefore potentially you could say, okay, well, maybe we could use a different uh, vaccine in the case of these people, or also just um, identify what the, 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 the process is and maybe then um, um, fix the problem. So even so reducing the chances, uh, they're already incredibly low, it's incredibly rare, so we need to re- reduce those, uh, that risk even further. Um, nobody should be scared. At, at, at mm-hmm. all, this is, uh, you know, there are there are side effects for the aspirin that you take. Uh, there are uh, side effects for almost any intervention, um, medical intervention. This is completely normal. There's nothing to be worried about. The main problem is that uh, we'll have, um, you know, an army of anti-vax uh, militants saying, "See, see, I told you, um, big pharma's out to uh, to put microchips in up your." But and stuff like that. <laughs> um, um, the reality, as I was just talking about, the reality is it—it's quite the reverse. The the, rea- the the fact of the matter is that vaccines just are not very profitable. That's why, you know, in the last uh, few decades, the number of um, vac- uh, companies involved in some aspect of vaccine manufacture has gone from twenty-five down to five. Part of that is consolidation, but the bulk of it is just that the problem with from a from a profit point of view is. Um, once you're vaccinated, you're not going to buy that vaccine again because you're you're done. You're that's you, the problem is solved. Uh, whereas uh, what a company wants to be doing is they want to be producing a commodity that uh, somebody has to, to 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 buy on a constant basis. So it's much better for them, much more profitable to be producing drugs or other therapeutics for um, chronic diseases where they have to take that drug maybe every day for the rest of their lives. That's much, much more profitable. The 
Operation Warp Speed, the advanced um, uh, purchase agreements, what the UK was doing in terms of monitoring the, uh, monitoring the supply chain, all, all of that package is a, the crucial thing there is about government de- removing the risk from investors. So the investors can then say, okay, I'm happy to throw money into this because I know I'm going to make my money back because the state has said I'm going to do that. Um, the irony is I wish vaccines were profitable. Like that's actually the problem, but they're not. Right. I mean, sure, that's the problem. But I like the profit motive behind all of it, I think, is the problem. I mean, you mentioned why, you know, investors aren't as interested in a vaccine when it's just one and done. There isn't really a money making yep. opportunity there. Um, not to sound c- conspiratorial, but I would love to get your thoughts on it. Doesn't that also provide a disincentive to find cures for things um, yes, as opposed does. to develop treatments? Yep, yeah, that's exactly I remember right. being young and my parents would would say that and I'd be like, you guys are crazy. But no, now now I get it. I guess I, I mean, need to grow up a little bit. <laughs> there is there's a conspiratorial way to uh, to think about that, saying, oh, the reason that we haven't come up with a cure for cancer is because it's, you know, uh, they, you know, uh, big pharma wants to whatever. Um, no, it's just there are many, 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 many different cancers. It's very, very complicated. Um, uh, that's that's the reason there. And the reality is that we have actually radically reduced incidences of cancer. We've radically we've radically enhanced um, um, uh, treatment of them. Um, yeah. So uh, I, I guess what I would be arguing is for. Um, a much more nuanced understanding, uh, an evidence-based understanding of the way that markets warp um, um, pharmaceuticals, the way that they warp medical equipment production, the way that um, uh, the profit motive undermines uh, uh, health outcomes with respect to private provision of of health services. All of that. I have a really good understanding of that. Again, based very clearly in evidence, and not sort of flipping over to <clears throat> it's just evil, um, uh, evil CEOs doing evil things. Um, you know, the alternate and because a lot of that turns to like an embrace of so-called alternative medicine for which there is absolutely no evidence of, of any benefit. And in many cases, actually uh, genuine harm um, from, you know, sort of quack uh, medical um, uh, treatments. Um Let's remember that those people operate in the market as well, in addition to the fact that it's just like it's just nonsense. What do you make of the um, proposals to I mean, I'm sure you agree with them, but uh, the proposals to waive patent uh, restrictions um, in the you know in WTO and things like that for, for yeah. the vaccine to allow <clears throat> developing countries to manufacture their own versions of, say, the Pfizer vaccine or, or, or whatever? Um, yeah. Uh, what do you make of that? Um, what, if if you were to make a rationale again, like, is there any sort of good faith rationale against it, or just or or no? Um, <clears throat> so I think we absolutely have a responsibility to the rest of the world to um, uh, to lift those uh, in, uh, patent protections. Let rip uh, both in uh, for a sense of, uh, out of justice that. Um, brown people deserve to be vaccinated too, um, but also just for our own protection. As the the longer that uh, the virus continues to circulate um, in the developing world or just anywhere, um, the more variants um, will emerge, 
uh, that undermine the efficacy of our own vac- of, of our vaccines, even if we have a fully vaccinated population in, um, in, in the West. So it, just epidemiologically, it's stupid not to do this. The good faith, in answer to your question, Andrew, about the, is there a good faith argument uh, uh, with respect to this? So the argument goes that um, there will be no incentive to private uh, pharmaceutical companies to develop vaccines, uh, or in fact anything, if um, the minute that we really need something, we undermine their patent protection. They suddenly now will always be worried that um, they won't be able to uh, get a return on investment. Um, so that's, they're not wrong there, the, but there's two things that we need to say in response to that. The first thing is, as I've just explained, they didn't pay for, the investors didn't pay for any of this. Um, the money, the, the, much of the, the, the technology platforms were developed in university labs or private labs, so university labs or government labs, um, the uh, the reason that they needed to partner with um, large uh, manufacturers like a- a- AstraZeneca or Pfizer was because they simply universities can't afford uh, cl- uh, clinical trials and they don't have the manufacturing capacity in house. There's no factories at universities. Um, but again, the clinical trials were paid by the state, and the uh, the manufacturing was either paid by the state or there were advanced purchase agreements to um, by the by the state. So every step of the way. It wasn't pri- uh, uh, private investors taking the risk, taking a gamble on this. Um, so, um, so it's just simply not true. And the second thing that I, we should begin to say is like, I, I'm of the opinion that it's about time that we take pharmaceutical uh, companies entirely into the public sector. That um, all that we're doing at the moment um, is, uh, even if the public sector is basically paying for things that are not profitable, the private sector is still running off and cherry picking those chronic diseases for which they can produce uh, therapeutics um, that are profitable. Um, and so this is fundamentally unfair. Uh, what we should be doing is we should be taking all of that into the public sector and then use the, the profits from the, the sale of profitable um, uh, drugs to subsidize the production of the unprofitable ones. Um, basically, it's the the post. I think last time I was on, we we're talking about the postal service model, uh, where it's profitable to send uh, a package from uh, from New York to Washington, but it's not profitable at all because there's so much labor involved. Send the same package to Anchorage, Alaska, but by dint of being a citizen of the United States, everyone has the right to uh, to uh, to this essential uh, infrastructure, and um, so they cross they cross subsidize. That would be the model for this as well. I think I think that's the right model. And I'm curious if um, Canada has learned anything from from this pandemic and not just Canada. Um, the countries are really struggling with manufacturing and distributing yeah. the vaccine, the wealthier developed countries. Have they learned anything from the flaws in their system? Yes and no. Okay. And very first, I should, I just remember something that I really wanted to say about what Nando was saying with respect to the developing world. Just a quick factoid here, which is just grotesque. Um, the British Medical Journal just had a, an article out saying that at the current rate of, of vaccination because of the uh, uh, under delivery of vaccine to the developing world, um, the poorest countries will likely not be uh, fully vaccinated until 2024. Mm. I mean, that's, Jeez, that's crazy. It's grotesque. It's absolutely grotesque. And just this weekend, um, the the count now is three million dead. 
3 million dead worldwide. That's half a Holocaust. It is fucking outrageous that we live in a, in a society, an economy that cannot do this. It's, ah, uh, makes me, ah, uh, I'm just furious, <laughs> furious, livid about this. Ah, uh, right. Back to, back to Canada, what Canada has learned, what Europe, the European Union has learned. So, needless to say, within Canada, Canadians are furious. Um, even conservative newspapers are banging the drum and saying, like, you dropped the ball, Trudeau. What on earth is going on in, in Ontario right now? The provincial government has just instituted, because the, the, uh, the, the third wave of infections is off the chain, uh, the government has introduced uh, an ability for, the, uh, for cops to stop anybody just randomly to ask, what are you doing out of the house where are you going? This complete breach of uh, uh, the Canada's charter of um, uh, 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 charter of rights, um, just because of this 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 utter um, uh, abandonment of, of, of public uh, production of of, of, of vaccines uh, vaccine manufacturing. So in response to this, Trudeau said, "Okay, okay, I'm listening. I'm listening." Um, and there was a lot of calls for him to sort of reestablish. Connaught Labs, or use the Connaught Labs model, um, and he set aside a billion dollars. And that doesn't sound a lot in the American context, but in the Canadian context, billions still quite a bit. And you think, okay, well, this is great, and he's funding, uh, he's going to be publicly funding um, um, vaccine manufacturing, so-called onshoring of, of vaccine manufacturing, returning uh, get re- vaccine sovereignty, delivering vaccine sovereignty. But he hasn't really learned the lesson. Um, that billion dollars is sprinkled across the country to uh, private labs and uh, uh, private manufacturers in Vancouver, uh, Calgary, Winnipeg. I think there's a, there's a university lab in, in Winnipeg, um, private labs in Montreal and Toronto. And one of the, the things that the, the public health experts talk about with respect to what made Connaught Labs so successful was the seamless end-to-end research, development, manufacturing and inspections in-house in a single body is this centralization it's also just secondarily a, a complete a waste of money every single um private sector unit within that supply chain you know some will be doing um the, f- the finishing some will be do, uh, the fill and finish some will be the actual production of the raw materials um others doing various different other aspects of the of the supply chain and the development um each of those private companies will have their own profit margin that they need to take out. So instead of that $1 billion um, being used to its maximum effect, the full billion dollars, large chunks of that will be taken out just as every different unit within that fragmented, diffuse um, uh, private sector entity um, um, yeah, across that entire, that entire network. And then finally, um, they haven't, he hasn't fundamentally solved the problem. Connaught Labs was privatized. <clears throat> so all, these are still private entities. The minute that even if they throw tons of public funding at them, subsidies, the minute that something is more profitable than those subsidies, like running off to some other uh, jurisdiction or being purchased by some um, some multinational that has its own priorities that they have nothing to do with Canada, uh, then you're recreating that same problem of loss of vaccine sovereignty. The only way for Canada to resolve the vaccine sovereignty issue is for Canada to produce effectively a, a public uh, sector, a public uh, um, vaccine production facility. Makes sense. Lee if Phillips, European, thank you sorry. so much. 
Oh, go ahead. Yeah, uh, if you wanted to finish up with the European Union. Union. You want to hear? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so the European Union has um, also sort of, despite all their like fire and brimstone that they're hurling at the UK, suggesting that you, the UK is um, is is, is uh, you know, evil and they're not sending their vaccines to uh, to the European Union. Really, I mean, this is basically not a cover up, but basically it is covering up for the fact that they just dropped the ball. Now, behind the scenes, they are sort of learning that lesson. And they are developing new sort of agencies within the European Union that may we'll see how it how how this develops, and I think that's certainly to be cheered. But at the same time, they still haven't fundamentally uh, learned the, uh, the the problem with the European Union in terms of state capacity. Uh, the um, the it's it's not <clears throat> the European Union basically still exists to remove. Um, 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 to hollow out state, it, to neoliberalize the state and its in its member states. Uh, so the delivery of this, I mean, it's it's a step forward, but at the same time, it will. Um, the more and more things that are like this, if that they attempt to do it, um, it will begin increasingly to look like a state. And once it begins to look more like a state, it really needs to have that democratic accountability. Otherwise, people will not accept it. Um, already, there's a lot of resistance to the European Union's lack of democratic accountability the european commission is unelected the european council is is elected but it's a it's a chamber that for, for which there are no direct elections and it meets in private it meets in secret the european parliament is parliament is the one democratic agency directly elected but um it is incredibly neutered it can only amend legislation it can't initiate legislation and even that only a, a small number of uh, fields of, of policy so for all it really is a very sub-democratic entity um, and that really is the rationale as to th th that was the purpose of it. It was to the the part and parcel of the 1970s, 1980s neoliberal neoliberal revolution was to uh, to uh, to insulate decision making from popular input because, and pop democratic control because democratic control tends to lead more social democratic. Um, and so, until they fundamentally solve that problem of democratic accountability. Um, it, it it's not and and give up the their the, the effort to to neoliberalize society. It's not fundamentally going to be solved. All right, um, everyone, check out Lee Phillips and his upcoming uh, article that's going to be published in Jacobin, and um, of course uh, his books. Uh, he's the author of Austerity Ecology and The People's Republic of Walmart. Lee, thank you again for joining us and being so yeah, generous no, with your yeah. time. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All Lovely. right. Yeah, he's so smart. That I mean, seriously, I love that we got like an advanced draft of that piece because it was so informative and and really pointed to like each country has the core problem of a privatized pharmaceutical model, right? Mm -hmm. But also unique issues when it comes to the way um, the vaccine is manufactured and distributed. Um, so definitely check it out once it's published in Jacobin. You should be subscribed, also, by the way. I love Make that the, happen. Uh, the way Lee, um, you know, he uses, he has, a, he's on the left, but he also is a very much engaged with kind of the real world, I guess, for lack of a better term, but also has imagination to imagine a, a, better future using the um, existing mechanisms of power. So like, you know, his book, uh, The People's Republic of Walmart, basically argues that Walmart's um, 
production or logistics sophistication and economic planning um, could be used as a good model for some sort of state planning that they are effectively kind of doing a lot of the functions that a state um, that a state does and and they and they do it effectively um, they just do it for profit rather than for people's needs um, and mm-hmm. I, I think about like um, you know you look at Cuba for example which um, um, has developed a vaccine um, and they have their own vaccine unsurprising and, yeah it's totally unsurprising yeah and it's Cuba's not to, like Rome. incredible yeah yeah and it's not like it's not it's the the reason why it's not it's not out of like some romantic notion about like Cuban ingenuity or whatever it's just that they have state planning and that they they have a strong state like as Leet was talking about that are that is able to um, dedicate its resources to um, something like this what he talks about like state capacity like you do a policy and then you actually go ahead and do it um, so Cuba which is a poor island nation um, is able to do it because it has a state that has strong capacity within those constrictions but they use it for um, their own people's needs um, if we did that if we had a similar orientation in the United States or in Europe or you know any rich country, like I mean the the potential for human development kind of like boggles the mind, right? It's like, it'd be, you know, if we, if we actually applied the might and the riches of this country towards, you know, social ends rather than, uh, you know, allowing some hedge fund guy to buy his 12th house, um, then uh, we would just unleash a amount of human potential that is, that is just absolutely mind-boggling. Um, so... So yeah, love love yeah. love reading Lee's work. Um, love hearing him talk. Um, you mentioned Cuba, so it reminded me of uh, boy. You're going to get me in trouble. I heard I heard no. Christian reached out to you, <laughs> reached out to you for your understanding of Cuba and and what really happened. My husband's Cuban, born and raised in South Florida, so hmm. he's been very, um, you know, he's only gotten one side of that story. So. Just gonna make sure his family knows he's talking to you. Okay, <laughs> I don't. I don't want any trouble with my in-laws. Anyway, why don't we bring Kale on um, and take some of your super chat questions? We're probably gonna end a little bit early today, but um, we, we're definitely gonna answer some of your questions before we go. What's up, Kale? Hey, this is a great show. Love Cuba. Love Lee. Uh, two of <laughs> two of our favorites here on Jacobin. Um, and always appreciate Lee coming on and sharing his infinite amounts of wisdom on like every topic. <laughs> so, um, yeah. okay. There's a couple super chat questions already in, and I'm going to pull those up in a second, but if you want us to answer anything live, we're live. This is happening right now on Saturday, April 17th. Send us a question, uh, via super chat and we'll do our best to answer it. So, um, I do want to start with this one actually, because it kind of speaks to something that, uh, Anna asked Lee earlier and then, and then, um, Lee started to, to touch on and, and maybe it's just worth it to kind of double down on this. But, uh, this, this, uh, viewer asks if a reason big pharma hasn't developed the universal flu vaccines, uh, or it, a reason why they haven't maybe that they are accruing billions in profit, uh, from flu medication. Do you think that documents saying that exist? Uh, would the media report on it if they did, such as when, um, you know, uh, what happened with uh, big uh, tobacco companies? 
Um, I mean, I don't know if those documents would exist, um, but I actually do think that the media would report on it. I mean, maybe I'm giving them too much credit, but I mean, like, we're obviously critical of corporate media, but even in legacy outlets, like, let's say the New York Times or even the Wall Street Journal, um, they do have reporters who tend to still do some muckraking that's important. Um, So the housing crisis and what happened following the housing crisis, um, a lot of that was reported on by legacy media outlets, corporate media, and some of those reporters did a great job. So I I think I think they would break that story if they had documentation to prove it. Yeah, uh, you know, it would make some reporters career the way the big tobacco story made, you know, turned Lowell Bourbon into a superstar um, played by Appuccino in the Michael Mann movie. Um, But uh, the. you know, whether there's like a document that says like, you know, that just like, like, like is a statement saying like this is exactly the way you don't really need it. You know, it's, it doesn't matter. You, you know, the profit incentive. Um, and, and, and that's, it's, it's not about being conspiratorial. It's, it's the most banal thing in the world. I mean, it's, right. it's just like people will respond if in a, in a profit driven society, um, in a market society um, in which all these functions are left to profit, the, the, the investment decisions will be geared towards the things that have most the, the greatest potential profit margins. That's just that's not like, you know, it's not smoke filled rooms. It's not evil CEOs. It's the most banal thing in the world. Like you don't need a smoking gun. That's just that's 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 right there out in the world for anyone to see. Um, so I mean, I mean think about the uh, mRNA framework, right? And how it was already pretty much developed. But as Lee Phillips mentioned, it was wallowing in like university labs and stuff because there wasn't really a profit motive to bring that to market. Um, and, and that's I mean, that's a perfect example. It's really enlightening. Right. Yeah. yeah the, those things that are profitable are produced and those things that aren't aren't. And yeah. so the only thing yeah. that will produce it is the state. That's yeah. it. You know, mm-hmm. like if it's not, if, you know, if it's not profitable, no one will, no one, no private organization, no private firm will produce it because right. why would they? It would or, have to be or, the state. Or if a state has uh, an industrial policy. And, and that's been a lot of the story of the 20th century, that you have states, you have governments around the world that are able to effectively, through carrots and sticks, uh, a lot more sticks than what we see now. It's a lot more carrots these days. But you can effectively get corporations to invest in the way that you want them to. Um, I mean, that's a lot of the the uh, success story of the Nordic countries is that, uh, you know, they still had and still have, uh, you know, big profitable corporations. It's just that uh, the profits go uh, are reinvested into uh, those public goods that benefit everyone because everyone all the workers involved played a crucial role in creating those profits in the first place. So they are justifiably, rightly uh, redistributed back into yeah. the economy to help the people. And because even if there, even if there would be some theoretical profit to be made, if the risk, if the amount of upfront capital investment is so large, you know, because it because it, 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 it's just, you know, it just, it's really hard to do something. I mean, this, we saw this in the, in the case of the railroads um, uh, that, you know, obviously it would be very profitable to own and operate a private railroad, but it just, it took so much money to build it that very few capitalists actually, um, 
you know, took the plunge because it was just such a risky investment in, in many ways. Um, you know, you, so you, sometimes you do need state um, capacity there to, to, to spur that kind of, to just like get them over the, over the initial hump of that. It's just like, you know, maybe, yeah, you can imagine in some theoretical future 20 years from now, like if, this, if, if, if some company was able to develop something, um, they'd make a lot of money. But it's, that's such a long way down the line, and there, must be, and there would be so, so much money up front uh, involved in, in the development that maybe they'll, they'll make the decision that it's not worth it. Um, so that's, that's another thing is just like it's just applying resources to endeavors that are, I don't want to say moonshots, but like, you know, that are just Very considered big, riskier for riskier. private investors. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, this is touching on what we're talking about. This is a super chat from earlier in the show that I can't pull up, but I have a screenshot of. Um, Tom asks, uh, there was a lot of corruption and cronyism in the UK uh, PPE procurement. Procurement. <laughs> Can the failures and excesses of capitalism and society be fixed without revolution? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that's a big question um, I, I don't see a revolution around the corner bro you know like yeah. I mean it's just the, you know it's just not you know you can't imagine 1917 I don't know like you know the, the 1917 happening or even 1959 Cuba those were much weaker states than and systems than we have now um, I just I just don't see it so we gotta figure something else out well and again I mean the history of the 20th century is the history of us doing just that, of us successfully, not completely, but successfully uh, in key ways, uh, curtailing the power of corporations, of of markets, of this necessity, this compulsion to maximize profit at the expense of everything else. Obviously, it wasn't uh, settled and, you know, we, this is, you know, one of the most unequal moments in human history that we're living through. But we've seen in the past that there are things that we can do. Um, and so the question is, was what happened in the past uh, a fluke? Was it something that was doomed to failure? Um, or was it that, uh, you know, they ran up against, uh, you know, important and significant contradictions and lost key battles. I mean, I, I tend to believe that a lot of the reason why the welfare state rolled back, some of it is just the changing nature of global capitalism. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's, in, there's moments where, you know, it wasn't, I don't think, uh, you know, from the get-go determined whether or not, you know, capital was going to win or workers were going to win. And like, these are fights. And so, you have to understand kind of the structural logic of the system that sets it up so that, uh, you know, business is, is always in a better place. But, uh, you know, we can, in fact, make changes within capitalism. And, you know, I, you know, I'm a socialist, but I think it's still kind of an open question to see how far we can go. You know, we should redo, you know, not exactly, but we should, you know, we should strive for something like social democracy, which is something we've seen, again, in the last 100 years. Uh, and then we need to find the ways in which we can move beyond that so that we can guarantee that people's life chances are not dependent on their abilities or their performance in markets. You know, some markets probably will still exist. Uh, and, you know, sometimes you can use profitability to good ends, um, you know, that uh, and that, that's what we're talking about with um, industrial policy, that, you know, you force corporations that have this incredible ability to make 
you know, a ton of wealth and, and production, you know, you should push that effort, that endeavor into something that produces public goods for, for working people. Um, so, yeah, I think it's we don't necessarily need a revolution, um, but at the same time, it's not really available anyway. So whether or not it is necessary is something that we don't know, I don't think, until we are in a much better position. It might be that there will be some final clash between workers and capitalists, but we are so far from whatever that is right now. Um, and so it, that's why it matters to try to deal with certain uh, legal issues to deal with, uh, you know, key workplace fights and struggles. And because these are real people's lives that we have to, you know, if you ever want them on board for the long project, you gotta, you know, we have to be able to show up and fight in the immediate fights that are happening right now. So, um, okay, let me, oh, there's, um, here, let me try to find some other super chats. Um, this was, from Irina, she just says thank you. But oh, uh, thanks, Irina. Appreciate that. Um, okay, so here's another one um, from Anastasia, who writes: I understand organizing to push large-scale policy is important, but given what we are up against, should socialists place more value on individual community efforts towards self-sustainability? Um, um, well, I mean, I guess the short answer is. Any any of those efforts have to be like a yes and effort that you know I, mm -hmm. I I don't discourage anyone from getting involved in their in local politics or even in like some sort of community effort to um, I don't know do like community gardens or something like that. Um, we've seen that especially like in the wake of of you know something like the hurricane in Puerto Rico. Uh, had they done a little bit more of that, maybe they would have been better off. But the at the at the end of the day, the global problem. Our problems are global in nature. They're large-scale problems, especially climate change, um, and they require large-scale um, efforts from powerful entities like states. Um, and that's just that's that's the only way that we're going to do it. I mean, that's just the only way that 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 anything meaningful will be improved is by harnessing the power of the state to to those ends and so, and some some of those and some of the problems we face some of the logistical challenges we face some of the environmentally challenges we face need large scale solutions like they just there's just no way to do it without without that so we really have no choice yeah i i totally agree with you on that i mean like being there for one another in your community. And I, I feel like there's like a, I mean, is this about mutual aid specifically or, or focusing more on local government? Um, but either one, I mean, it's, it's still not really a, a, a robust solution to what we're experiencing in a global economy. And even, you know, with this pandemic, a global pandemic, you really need um, a centralized response to it in order to, handle it effectively from beginning to end. And, you know, countries like the United States haven't really had that kind of approach. Um, that's why we failed from the beginning. I mean, the, once the supply chains were, you know, stressed and we weren't able to get PPE, it shows how disastrous it is to, you know, not have manufacturing of these things in our country. Like all of these things need to be taken care of um, by the federal government. And, 
you know, if, if your community does what it can to prepare, that's one thing, but it's not enough, obviously. Right. I think that's, I think that's totally correct. And, and so people who are focusing on, you know, the smaller fights that the more immediate fights, whether it be smaller in, um, you know, the problem it's addressing or, you know, in the ambition or the, you know, the location, the amount of people, whatever it is, you know, that's not to discourage anyone from doing these things. We need, you know, we should, this is a moment where we need to be taking care of one another, but we also need to understand like the only way that you're going to like deal with the structural problems is at a far larger uh, kind of plane of battle. And so, um, and so we should understand our fights as being, um, you know, aspects of a larger fight, uh, or at least we should, um, you know, we shouldn't just label it kind of, you know, well, I'm, I'm being anti-capitalist because I say I'm being anti-capitalist or something, you know, it, you should be genuinely trying to do what you can, where you can, uh, to challenge, uh, those in power because they're creating injustices in the world. Um, and sometimes that's small, sometimes that's, you know, most of the time it's at a very large scale, but, um, you know, we, we should understand, uh, these efforts as not disparate, but, um, or we will succeed when they're not disparate, when, when all these efforts are in fact kind of culminating in a, in a much larger political project and vision, even though, again, in a country like ours, we largely lack a lot of the infrastructure for those kinds of larger fights. Um, and so that's something else that, you know, I think we have to think seriously, how do we move forward in building that kind of infrastructure? Uh, you you know, whether it be um, independent organizations, working class organizations, working class parties, um, things like that. Um, and Scott, I'll just put this super chat up. Um, that we need solidarity and more empathy with each other. We have to pull together internationally. Mutual aid can help. It isn't everything. Yeah, I think that's I think that's part of uh, what we're saying. Um, okay, last last super chat, uh, and this one's fun um, because. Jerry had asked us a moment earlier what some of our favorite movies with socialist ideology are, or some that explore issues that progressives care about. Uh, and he mentions Parasite. So I don't know if he's saying that is our favorite or if he's asking if it's our favorite, but yeah. That's a good goes- one. <laughs> Parasite's good. You know, there's, I mean, uh, the, the other one, the other Bong Joon-ho movie, uh, Snowpiercer, also is an allegory for you know, a class stratified society. Um, uh, Sorry to Bother You is a socialist movie um, that is in recent times very good. There's a movie called Matawan, um, which is which is very good. That's from the 1980s. Um, and then there's, there's uh, you know, there, a documentary that everyone should watch is the... Um, uh, the documentary about the about the miners' strike in Kentucky, and it's called what's it called? You know what it's called, Kale? Yeah, um, uh, Harlan Harlan County, USA. Harlan County, Harlan County, USA. Exactly, hundred um, percent worth watching. Um, re- really remarkable footage of a uh, labor struggle in the nineteen seventies that turned pretty violent, and um, and is just. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, 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 I think it should be required viewing for everyone watching the stream. Yeah. I would also mention, just real quick, 
on top of that, Barbara Copel, who's the director of Harlan County, USA. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, actually, but her other movie, American Dream, is really worth watching, too. Um, on the Hormel uh, uh, meatpacking plant strike in um, 85 and 86, it's an incredibly like, in-depth and fascinating look at a union fight. And again, specifically a union fight in just in the middle of neoliberalism and globalization, just kind of on the you know, on the down slope effectively. And um, it's, it's a fast, I mean, I think I love my political quibbles with the director on kind of the perspective she takes, but it's an oh, amazing amount of quibbles. footage. Oh, you have your political quibbles. Yeah. I mean, oh, Kale, Kale's got his, politi- <laughs> Kale's got his politi- political quibbles with uh, Barbara Copel. Let's call her up and maybe they can have a debate. Uh, <laughs> no, my favorite thing is Nando trolling Kale. It's hilarious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't even um, want to say my real answer. Anna, you go. <laughs> No, no, go ahead, Kale. Don't let him bully you. Come on. It's funny, but don't let him bully you. What's your real answer? You guys should check out the movies of Renier Werner Fassbender. He's a German director. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, get out of here. (laughs) Okay, um, real quick. uh, I, I... it's not a socialist movie per se, but it just came out on Netflix and I thought it was really well done. And it talks about, honestly, like the underlying issue is the private, like the private long-term end of life elder care system. Like, Mm. and it's called, I care a lot. Did you, did you see that Nando? I haven't seen it. It's It's so good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's good. It'll make your blood boil. Yeah. Yeah. Your blood boils like watching that. And it's, just just watch it and just know that what's happening in that movie happens all the time in that industry. There, it's disgusting. There's a, there's a show on HBO Max. It, I think it used to be on a different network, but now it's on HBO Max called Warrior. Which yes! Is about, yes! It's good. So good. Um, I was going to yeah. bring it up. But yeah, no, yeah, yeah. But it, it really talks about like how labor precarity and uh, you know can fuel racial animus essentially you know it's really good. Um, and it's it really is about um, it really is about like capital and labor like in that sense like it just you know there's the bosses and then there's and how they import workers and how they pit workers against each other and um, blah 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 um, also there's a lot of good kung fu fighting so uh, if you like there enjoy is. if you jo- if you enjoy enjoy some kung fu fighting and uh, uh, pretty pretty you know i thought effective capital and labor analysis warriors for you that show is so underrated right like and and i agree with you the theme is so important and i think it's rare in a series you know so I, i really enjoyed that um and anyway it's got many layers to it uh the one non substantive thing that i'm gonna say is assam's character is like You'll love it, ladies. You'll love it. Just watch it. You'll learn something. You'll enjoy it. He's super hot. Like, I can't, I can't get enough. Anyway, it's a really good series. Class struggle for the ladies. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Before we go, I want to say, please hit like, please hit subscribe, share us with your friends, uh, share Lee with your friends, check out Lee's piece when it comes out. It's really good. Um, We don't mean to hoard all of, you know Lee's good writing, but you will get it soon in the in the interwebs. I think sometime yeah. later next week, and, and maybe in the next issue of Jacobin, Kale Brooks is going to publish his quibbles with uh, his political quibbles with Barbara Koppel, um, why she is not sufficiently 
sophisticated in her politics. Uh, so the debate of the decade that no yeah. one wanted. <laughs> All right. And everyone check out Kale's piece in Jacobin. Um, From from posting to politics, baby. Uh, mm -hmm, Made me feel mm -hmm. good about my life choices, you know? Sometimes I wonder, like, you know, we're yapping all day on on the podcasts and on the YouTubes and, you know, whether it has any effect um, or whether it's just totally useless. Uh, The answer is it's a mixed bag, folks. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Um, it is, but it's not enough. mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Thank you, Kale. Right, and thank you to everyone watching. Um, Nando, as fun as always. Yes. All right. I never know how to end this thing. It's always no. super awkward. What, like it's when okay. I'm doing TYT, I've got a hard out. So I'll be like, post game yeah. is next. And then it ends. Yeah. So you know what? We don't have a post game. See you later. Bye. Later.